0: fiercely wanted to prove that I could do it all but I realised quite quickly that doing it all wasn't
1: always cracked up to be Annie Mack Annie Mack a superstar DJ who's been forging her own cult status for nearly 20 years make
0: some noise I was a teenager in the 90s heroin chic Kate Moss it was very hard not to become consumed by what the magazines and the music videos are kind of showing you become obsessed with how much you weigh and what you're eating and all of that I really wanted to get out. I loved music. I loved talking to people. I loved connecting with people. What happens when you put music and connections together? Radio. Welcome to BBC Radio 1. I was mad ambitious. I wanted to get bigger. I wanted to try everything. I felt like I wanted to prove a point. There was a lot of pressure being female in what was essentially a man's world. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it, when you don't feel like you can do anything good enough. It became this kind of feeling of the walls closing in I should be more grateful for the fact that I'm getting sent brilliant music every week And I get to play this on the radio But I don't feel excited enough for what this is I felt like I didn't want to be needed by so many people anymore Get yourself together, Annie, come on Jesus Christ, this is your last link on Radio 1 It takes time to feel at peace with yourself, to just walk away
1: for people that are stood there looking into uncertainty, can you tell them about how you felt in the lead-up to that decision? Was there fear? Was there doubt?
0: What I've realised now is...
1: Annie, what do, I, um, what do I have to understand about your, your origin story, where you came from, the context which, in which you were raised to understand the person that's sat in front of me today?
0: Um, probably that I grew up around a lot of noise, <laughs> being the youngest of four. Um, my mum had four babies in five years. Um, so we were all very close together. You know, we were, I guess, I don't know how you would, maybe lower middle class. Um, I was born in a housing estate. My claim to fame I was the first baby born in our housing estate. Um semi-detached uh, my dad worked in England from Monday to Friday so he was away a lot so my mum kind of raised us in the weeks and um, I was surrounded by love um, and because I was the youngest kind of allowed to grow up without too much fussing uh, without too much disturbance I was allowed to figure out my own likes Um And I was hugely influenced, of course, by my older brothers and sister um, and still am. So I've always been around people. I've always felt a kind of sense of being part of a a group, a a big family, which gives you that feeling of safety, I suppose. The other thing I would say is that I've always, and you kind of notice this as you get older and you go home and, you know, you, you regress when you walk in your front door and you become a teenager again. I... I've always noticed that I, I, I am a bit of a pacifist, uh, pa- sorry, a pacifier, um, a diplomat. I like to try and keep the room happy. You know, I like to try and keep the equilibrium between people. So I'll become a joker. I'll become an entertainer. I kind of, I like to try and make people happy. So that's, that's another thing I've noticed.
1: Was that a useful skill at some point in your life or a required skill? Keeping people happy, being a pacifier?
0: I think it w- I think it's become useful later in life, especially in my professional life, because I literally chose a job that was to be a conduit of joy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that was my job on Friday nights on Radio One for many years, is just to spread the kind of magic and joy that, you know, that music can give, you know, this euphoric feeling. I was that messenger. So I did find a job that led to. Me making use of that skill, I suppose if you could call it a
1: skill. It's certainly a skill. I'm wondering why, why, why you were a pacifier though. Why, is that something? I know? think
0: I think like just you know there was no there was never any like you know trauma in our house or anything like that. But it was definitely just a loud, busy house, and you know, four teenagers in one house is a lot, you know, there's loads of arguing and stuff. So it's easy to take, everyone takes a role when you live in a house like that. And my role was to keep people sweet, basically. And as the youngest, it was easy because I was that kind of, you know, I was the one that everyone, I guess, doted on a bit. So it was easy to play that role.
1: What influence did your parents individually have on you? When you look at your, who you are today, can you see sort of an imprint of either of them?
0: Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that there's both, they're both in me quite a lot. My father is an extrovert. He loves people. He loves his friends. He loves chatting to anyone he can chat to. So I I very much got that off him. My mom is really bookish and really smart and very gentle. She, she kind of, she, she parented with real kindness and a real sense of selflessness and just... She was just soft and gentle in a way that the more I look at now as a parent, I'm just kind of in awe of, especially with four bonkers kids bouncing around the house. So I don't know. I I think my friends have said there's an element of me that's strong and also an element of me that's sweet. And I think um, maybe that's one parent in each of those.
1: Before, before you became an adult, what were the things that were you were worrying about You know, like I I reflect on my childhood and I think about the insecurities, the shame, the trying to fit in in an all white school and all those things and how that kind of shame had a big role in the the path I pursued in my orientation. Mm. Um, What was, what were the things that were occupying your mind when you were under the age of 18, the insecurities, the fears of the world, et cetera?
0: No, I mean, there was so much, you know, corporeal stuff, so much about your body and the changes that your body is going through and. Were you thin enough and were you skinny enough? You know, I grew up, I was born in 78. So I was a teenager in the nineties, you know, heroin chic, Kate Moss, you know, low rider trousers that hung off your hips. That was, you know, like rib cages on show, all of that. So, I mean, it was very hard not to become consumed by what the, you know, the magazines and, you know, the music videos and all of that are kind of showing you. So of course, like there was shame. Um, I think in Ireland you grow up around shame. There's a lot of shame in Ireland as a country. I think it's kind of passed down generationally. I was brought up like Protestant, so I went to kind of a Church of Ireland church, but Ireland is, is, you know, the majority of Ireland is Catholic. So there's a lot of shame in that. Um, When I was born, there was no divorce, there was no abortion, there was no gay marriage, there was nothing like that. But in my lifetime, I've been incredibly lucky because Ireland has changed hugely irrevocably um and you know publicly voted for all three of those things divorce abortion gay marriage um and it's become a way more kind of outward facing country but I suppose when I was growing up still it felt very closed it wasn't really that outward looking I don't think um so I felt very eager and curious about the world everything I knew about the world was through the face magazine or NME or tfi friday or you know all all the kind of culture that i sucked up um so i was just curious to go and see it basically and get out i really wanted to get out
1: had i asked you um at that time you knew you were going to leave if i'd asked you where you were going to go and what you were going to do what would you have told me
0: well i really wanted to be an actress that was like my one true love um, and that I kind of put all my eggs in that basket. Now, I did apply for a, an acting course in Dublin with this very prestigious university. It's Trinity University. It's a uni that's in normal people. Uh, that's how I call it now. Um, but I didn't get in. Spectacularly failed the audition. Um, at that classic kind of went to go and do my speech. It was a soliloquy at the end of Romeo and Juliet and like froze, like couldn't, the words just didn't come, you know, awful, awful went home, chopped all my hair off. I had hair down to my, like, to my lower back, chopped it all off, came home with hair like that long, gave my mom a plastic bag with my ponytail in it and was like, that's it, my life's over. Basically, I didn't get into the course. I'm, you know, I was such a drama queen, Steve, clearly. But um, my life at that point, I'd kind of like, I'd, I'd done really well, not really well, sorry. I was always kind of, I was just average. I did grand in school, but I... It, succeeded at other things. I was good at sports. I was in the choir. I was kind of like proactive and involved in lots of things. And everything that I'd kind of wanted at that point had gone my way until this point. And I was like, well, like, it's so ironic. I was actually voted the person most likely to be a movie star in my year. I was like, it's, it's destined. I'm going to be a movie star. This is easy. I'm just going to walk into this course and do it. And then just didn't get in. And it was a real rejection. And something that I hadn't experienced before. And it was actually my mom who really helped me out of that rut. She was the first person in her family to go to university. She went to Queen's and she suggested I go there and apply through Clearing. Um, And at that point I was desperate. I didn't know what else to do. So I went up to Belfast, which is about two hours north of Dublin on the train. And um, I got in there through Clearing and, and did English literature there. So she helped me find my way out of that rut she was always very a very calm presence in the background, always very wise and calm and kind of she, when I look back, the more I think about her, the more I think she, she guided so much of my decisions very quietly, you know, never any pressure or any, you know, just suggesting. Um, so I did leave home. I got out. I went to the island of Ireland, but it was technically another country. It was the UK. It was Belfast. And it felt completely different from the island on you. Um And it was completely starting again. I didn't know anyone. I was living in halls in this room with someone I'd never met. And I had to start from scratch. And it was kind of cool because it meant that all of the baggage that comes from growing up in Dublin, uh, you know, everyone wants to know what school you go to. Oh, do I know your mum? Does she teach at that school? You know, all of that is gone. i I was a completely unknown person I had a clean slate I could build my identity from scratch and figure out exactly who I was in this new world without the kind of I suppose the the, not constraints or even baggage but just without all of that stuff that came with me in Dublin the family connections the Mm -hmm. school all of that so it was it felt really really scary but also really exciting and they were honestly three of the best years of my whole life I've found friends, I've found a new family for myself in that way and figured out what I wanted to do slowly over the course of three years, um, found the career that I wanted, which was radio. And I always think, like, looking back, you know, sometimes the things that you don't get end up being the best things that you've ever, you know, gotten in a way like if if you mess up if you fail if you don't get what you want that can end up being the best thing that ever happened to you and that's very much what happened to me you know I, I I had one path it didn't work I had to turn left and it meant then that I was able to kind of very slowly and organically feel out how I wanted to live in the world what made me happy what did I love I loved music more than anything. I loved talking to people. I loved interacting with people. I loved con- connecting with people. What happens when you put music and connection together? Radio, music, radio. And it was that simple. It's such a simple, rudimentary equation. But I made, that, I made that equation and I was like, okay, that's, that's where I'm going to
1: go talk about how failure can um redirect you towards something else and i think everybody can relate to that in their own lives but there was a question in my mind because i know how how persistent you are and i know how hard working you are so why didn't you go back around for another shot at um acting why didn't you mm. redo the test or go to another college why did you yeah. go off in another direction it's a really good question because i i asked myself that
0: recently because i actually interviewed um Anne-Marie Duff on my podcast and that happened to her. She didn't get into acting college and she went back and she, 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 she tried again. I think that maybe I didn't want it as much as I thought I did. <laughs> Basically, like I'd, I'd, I'd been a lead in the school play and suddenly I was like, that's it, I, you know, it's destined. But I hadn't done any acting experience. I, I hadn't done any amateur theatrics. I hadn't done anything like that. So I, I think I was feeling a little lost and I think a lot of the time in school, there's a pressure to pick a path. What are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to be? Where, you know, what's your vocation? It's ridiculous to ask an 18 year old. We know that as adults, that life changes, life zigzags. You you change all the time. So uh, like for me, it felt like convenient because I had this experience that was good. And it was like, OK, well, that's grand. I'll just do that as opposed to really kind of thinking it through and coming into it.
1: You're talking there about discovering who you are and also that moment when you're, you're 18 and you've got to kind of pick a pick an identity and it's right. kind of this un, unsaid assumption that this is what you're going to be forever. So it feels high pressure. What have you come to learn generally about these labels we put on ourselves? I am a lawyer. Mm. I am a actor. And the you know I understand why they serve us sometimes. They help us to fit in. They help us to be mm. understood. We put them in our bio and people understand who we are before they meet us, et cetera. Mm. But there can also be a real downside to these, to kind of pigeonholing yourself in your own mind as a thing.
0: Completely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think I think the world can be terrifying sometimes. And I think it's comforting um, to be able to put a label on yourself and feel like you're part of something, a community, a tribe, a vocationary, you know, thing. Um, and also to, as you say, to be understood by people Um Prue Leith came on Changes and talked about how she very much believes that you should have a revolution every 20 years in your life. And I'm obsessed with that now because I feel like I'm going through that now, you know, in my 40s. I'm going through my second revolution. And I love that idea that you should be able to completely put, you know, obviously there's a privilege in this, you know. I'm not assuming that everyone could just drop their jobs and go and get another one. But if you are able to afford the space and the time to do that, I think it's so good for being alive to learn. This is what I figured out. Everything's about learning, basically. Everything comes down to learning. To, to That's when you feel the most alive. That's when you feel the most stimulated. That's when you feel most connected to yourself is when you're learning. So for me, I just want to keep learning. And very much with my own experience now, I have two young sons, that when they are growing up, I'm going to try and be very uh, open about what they do and encourage them. I mean, it even happens now with kids, you know, you can't force them to do things. You can't force your kid to play football if he's not into football. But if he's decided he really wants to kind of do hip hop dance, well, come on then, let's go do hip hop dance. It's kind of, it's the same as adults. You can't force yourself to do something, but if you feel a pull... You should be able to do that. And the only way you feel those pulls is to be able to listen to yourself. So you have to check in with yourself. You have to give yourself the headspace and the time to really allow yourself to, uh, to 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 listen, to listen to to how you feel about life, to listen to when things feel a little wrong, or to when you feel un unstimulated. You know, to come back home at the end of a week, a working week and say, I didn't feel remotely excited or stimulated about what happened that week. Okay, what can I do to change that? How can I tweak things? Do I need to zoom out and really look at my general career? Is there different things I can do? It's that. It's constantly checking in with yourself all the time. And that can lead to small incremental changes, but also really big, big ones, which I feel very excited by.
1: It's, it's almost a bit of a paradox that we can become the victim of our own success in that regard. If we become really good at being a lawyer... Mm. then we build a community around us that, of lawyers and mm. we, we get known as that. We become this identity and then we almost become somewhat imprisoned by this mm. identity. Sometimes it's a job title that we were really good at. We got awards for, so now sure. everybody sees us as that. Um, what in your experience is the cost then of becoming too wrapped up in your own label or identity? What What cost have you experienced in your life? Is there a psychological yeah. cost? Is it a? I
0: think, I think it's like, it's, it's basically the only cost is is a feeling of stagnation, I suppose. You know, like and, and stagnation's maybe a strong word, but everyone will relate to the feeling of, of the word coasting, right? When you're coasting. I I guess I was feeling that a little bit at, at the BBC and especially with DJing. So they're two very different things, but with the BBC, I felt um I mean I I loved my job and I'm so grateful for it and all of that but I think I did feel a little coasty I felt like I was coasting a bit you know and there's a point where you feel like I should be more grateful for the fact that I'm getting sent brilliant music every week and I get to play this on the radio but I don't feel excited enough for what this is I don't feel like I'm serving my audience right now in the right way I'm not on their level when it comes to how excited I should be about what this is so that was a conscious decision to take myself out of that and be able to have someone replace me who serves them and who are at the peak of their fucking excitement about, you know, that. And um, I still love broadcasting and I still want to broadcast, but it would be in a different way. With regards to DJing, I feel like the problem with DJs that they always say is that the, the DJs grow up and the crowd stay the same age. And that's what happens. You feel yourself growing and growing. So when I started out DJing, I was flinging myself in the crowd. I had a problem with crowd surfing. It was like, (laughs) stop fucking crowd surfing, Annie. It was constant. I'd get get hammered. I'd be like hugging people. We'd have after parties and then after after parties, I'd get no sleep. I'd fall asleep in Ibiza airport face down waiting for the flight. Like I, I had the best time. But then life catches up with you when you have kids and you grow up and you have other priorities. So fast forward 10 years, I'm DJing to people who are the same age, but I'm thinking about what I'm going to put in the school lunches the next day. Right? I'm thinking about... How much sleep I'm going to have in the pillow, on the way way home in the back of this car before my kids wake up at six o'clock and how I'll be able to get through the working day tomorrow. I started dividing my time in increments of kind of 15 minutes because I was so stressed out about not being able to have the time to sleep, to rest, to then be a good parent, to be able to do my job properly. It became like this kind of feeling of the walls closing in, you know, just like I can't. Please, everyone. So at that point, it was like, I this isn't sustainable. It's just not sustainable. I can't keep doing this. And I started DJing a lot less because of that. The world of DJing and dance music and and club culture was, in the very nature of how it worked, kind of shutting me out because of how I was changing as a person. But then I kind of opened a door and made it work for me and a lot of other people. And when I do the Before Midnight shows, people just come up and say, thanks. They're mm-hmm. just like, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm 52 and I feel like I can belong here and I can come out. And, you know, it's not just people in their 50s. It's all ages. It's club kids. It's mothers and sons. It's, uh, you know, people in their 70s. It's, it's the most beautiful atmosphere. I've never DJed to a crowd like it because they're so kind and open and it's not really that druggy everyone's just there it's their one night out they invest so much in it and they're there to have a good time it's nice to know that my own feelings about something were echoed by so many other people and I don't know any other women in their 40s really who are doing what I do so I was coming at it from a very unique perspective which is women in their 40s just aren't listened to in music industry music industry is run by men mostly right so when you have a woman in her 40s they're kind of forgotten about right they i don't think people think about women in their 40s or 50s when it comes to selling music and they really should it's a big big industry there's a lot of income there there's a lot of investment of time they you know there's there's some great taste and uh it's been wonderful to kind of feel like I can give those women a space in, in the world of clubbing.
1: There's a real, I hear a real lesson in, about creativity, but also innovation in that, in the sense that when you, when you think about creating new things, it's very difficult to try and put yourself in the mind of someone who are you, you are not and sure. when, when you want to create something that is, um, that is going to feel authentic and is going to be original and, mm. and in demand, you should first create something for yourself under the assumption that there's many more people out there like you.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: And your music is kind of a, a reflection of that in many, many ways. Your style has been a reflection of that. It's, it's always felt very authentic.
0: Um, yeah. I think that's the key, right? To everything in my, in, in my opinion is authenticity. And in order to be authentic, you have to trust yourself. You have to have conviction in yourself and you have to trust that your own instinct is the right instinct, even if everyone else is telling you something different. That That's hard. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to really know yourself. Um, so I don't know. I think at radio, my job there was to play music and break bands, right? You get sent so much music. Okay, now at some point you have to say no to stuff and the grounds of that, there's many reasons you can say no. You can, they're not the right hype band. They don't have enough followers, you know. They don't have someone from their record label who's nicing me up to play it. But actually the decision has to be down essentially to you. Does this song move you? Do you feel like this song has got something, ideas, lyrics, sonics that can, you know, that, that elevates it to the point where you feel like moved by it and I suppose there's training in that because it makes you every day every week have to use that mechanism in your mind which is instinct Do you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah you, you have to you have to listen to your own instinct so so I I was kind of exercising that muscle by default in my job and uh I guess that's why I'm so happy and just Grateful for before midnight because that is an extension of that. It's it's me using my instinct and saying no. I I believe in this. Surely there must be people out there who, who believe this too. Um, and it's been amazing.
1: Instinct is almost, um, especially in the way you describe it, it's almost a voice inside of you that is 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 whispering to you about what the you know what you think and feel and what you truly want. But then there's this counter narrative, this counter voice, which is. Uh, usually outside of you it can be oh well what if my producer doesn't think that's a good song or what if the yeah. listeners don't like it or what if my parents think I shouldn't be doing this as a mm-hmm. um has your ability to tune into your own instinct to that voice inside of you that te- that informs you kind of before you know yourself consciously has your ability to tune into that grown over time
0: mm.
1: and with evidence
0: yeah I, th- I think yeah I think it really has actually um I think it really has. I mean, as well as the radio shows, DJing is a huge amount of that. It's having the courage to draw for a tune that you know the audience don't know and uh, won't recognise, but you still think will will keep them on the floor. And again, that is like... It, it's, it's a really hard exercise and it takes a lot of fearlessness to be able to do that. And it's very easy to panic and just put on the tune that you know it's <laughs> going to fill the dance floor. And I have a folder on my USB called panic for that is special <laughs> thing. So, you know, we, we all have those, every DJ does. But again, I think that's a really good lesson in instinct and a lesson in kind of reading the crowd, but also holding firm, holding firm to your own conviction in something's good. And I think that has grown over the years. It's grown with confidence. It's grown with, I suppose, the idea of my shows being successful and my DJ sets being successful. So as I've become more successful in my career, as a result of instinct, of mm-hmm. trusting myself and trusting my instincts and my tastes, then obviously, you know, that that feeling grows more firm. You, you get less worried about making the wrong decision.
1: And as your career has progressed, do you feel like if one side of the pendulum is... Um, trying to guess what people want from you in yeah. all facets of your life. And the other side of the pendulum is doing what I think is right. Yeah. Do you think over your, over the last sort of 10, 20 years of your career, you've moved towards the instinct doing what I think is right?
0: Definitely. Yeah. I'm kind of all there now. Good. <laughs> which is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really good. And I think part of my, the, the the big changes that went on in my life in the last couple of years, kind of extricating myself from Radio 1 and, doing writing and writing books and taking up podcasting. That's all been about that. It's all been the kind of nucleus of all of those changes is me saying, what do you want? What do I want? What makes me happy? What is not making me happy? It's all of that. It's all just checking in and and doing what I feel is right. And there's no way I could have made those changes 10 years earlier or even five years earlier. It takes time. It takes takes time to feel like um, at peace, with yourself enough to just walk away from a career like that and say no i'm going to do something completely different now
1: As you know, Intel are now sponsoring this podcast, and last week I introduced you to Intel Evo Platform, the badge of approval for high-spec laptops that pass Intel's own strict requirements and enable you to be more productive on the go. As someone who spends most of their life on the go, it's Intel Evo that really caught my eye when we were discussing this partnership. The idea that Intel gives your laptop the seal of approval for you on all things like all-day battery life, fast charging, and high performance makes my life easier when I'm buying a new laptop, because I know that if it's got that Intel seal of approval, then it's going to be able to keep up with me. They've basically done all the hard work and research for you and confirmed it's going to be able to keep up with your busy life on the go. Head to intel.co.uk slash Evo to find out more about the Intel Evo platform. Also, for a limited time, you can currently get 15% off all Intel Evo devices at johnlewis.com. The code is EvoCEO15. That's E-V-O-C-E-O-15 until December 11th. So head over to johnlewis.com to check out the Intel Evo designs and get your 15% off Terms and conditions apply. See more details in the description box. Quick word from one of our sponsors. I've got a tip for all of you that will make your virtual meeting experiences I think 10 times better. As some of you may know by now, BlueJeans by Verizon offers seamless, high quality video conferencing. But the reason why I use BlueJeans versus other video conferencing tools is because of immersion. Their tools make you feel more connected to the employees or customers you're trying to engage with. And now they're launching one of their biggest feature enhancements to impact a virtual events so far called Blue Gene Studio. I actually used it the other day. I did an, a virtual event using the studio, which I think about 700 of you came to, TV-level production quality, all done by one person with very little technical experience on a laptop. So if you've got an event coming up and you're thinking about doing it virtually, check out BlueJean Studio now. Let me know what you think, because I genuinely believe, I know this is an advert and I'm supposed to say this, but I genuinely believe it's the best tool I've seen for doing really immersive, simple but high quality production virtual events. quick one from our longest standing sponsor here. I, I can't tell you over the last, I'd say over the last, really it's been about two and a half years, it was really... Um, post-pandemic, how much my health has become such a huge priority in my life. Huel has been probably the most important partner in my health journey because I've been in the boardrooms, I've been to their offices, Tens and tens and tens and tens of times, I've seen how they make their decisions on nutrition. And that's why it's such a wonderful thing to be able to talk to this audience about a brand and a product that is so unbelievably linked to my values and the, and the, the place I am in my life of valuing the gym, exercise, movement, my mind, my breathing, and all of those things. And most importantly, my nutrition. That is the role Huel plays. And so every time I get to read these ads out, I do it with such passion because I really, really believe every word I'm saying. And I absolutely love the brand. So if you haven't already tried Huel and you've been resisting, distant to my my pestering then give it a go and let me know how you get on zooming back then on into that part of your life where you described yourself as having um a knot in your stomach the quote i read is yeah i've learned that for the past six years i've had a knot in my stomach i had no idea it was there until it's gone
0: yeah yeah
1: i could relate to that yeah how um the feeling because the broader context of what you were saying there is this feeling that you're like not going to do a good job at pretty much anything at the mm. same time and almost like a building sense of guilt or trying mm. to find a way to, to slow down time um, and it's always kind of hanging over you mm. and then it, you can kind of feel it in your chest mm. I, I mean that's kind of what I, I took from it is yeah, sure walking around with a sense of guilt and I, I just need five more minutes to sleep or to be this or to do Absolutely. well for this person
0: yeah it's a horrible feeling isn't it when you don't feel like you can do anything good
1: enough it's like the absence like, of peace. Isn't it? Yeah,
0: it's the, it's the opposite of peace. It's a constant feeling of kind of turbulence in your head, constantly being pushed and pulled. Um, so when you take that out, um, again, you you know, you're, I was too busy. I keep I keep talking, I keep going back to it, but I keep talking about checking in with myself. I was too busy to do that. I hadn't done that. I I never did that. I was never like spiritual or into any of that stuff because I was too busy. It was like, I don't have time for anything apart from just getting up and getting through my day. My friends used to take the piss out of me because everything was like five minute increments. They call me. I'd be like, cool, give me the headlines. How are you? I don't have time for a full, you know, it was always that. Um, it was always like, how can we, how can we truncate all of this into a short time as possible so I can move on to the next thing? And do more. Yeah. And do more or just, or just like, maintain I wasn't even about doing more it was just maintaining at that point so when I when I made the decision that I was going to leave radio it's important to know the context of which that happened so I I didn't just walk away from the career and be like see ya I'm just going to see what happens I obviously took a couple of years to try out some different avenues and these were avenues that I felt very passionate about I really wanted to do so one was writing and one was podcasting and podcasting was a reaction to the BBC. It was definitely me being like, I want to own something that, w- w- with regards to my own broadcasting. I want to control it. Um, I love the BBC. I will, you know, fly the flag for the BBC forever, but it can be very frustrating working for a huge institution because there's so many islands, there's so many departments. It's very hard to get something off the ground. So I wanted to be a broadcaster outside of the BBC and see how that felt. So that was podcasting. And then writing was something that was very much not professional or career oriented at all. That was for my soul. That was like, I want to try and learn something. I know I loved this. I want to try and do it again. And also, I think in retrospect, it was a way of me trying to understand myself because they say that about writing, like writing is a way to know yourself. So I thought if I wrote, in hindsight, maybe it was a, a kind of weird subconscious way of me trying to climb out of the panic you know it was kind of like I know if I if I make myself dedicate time to writing then I will have to confront myself I will I will have to look in the mirror and I know deeply deep down that there's something wrong but I just don't have the time to confront it so I was doing writing I did a course um a six-month course I was also doing podcasting that was on top of DJing on top of doing my five shows a week on top of everything else that was going on so I had two years of total chaos of trying to juggle everything right and it was after those two years um, when I was like okay I know enough I know I love writing enough I know I love podcasting enough that I can give these a go I'm going to take myself out of radio now I'm going to take myself out of my what was essentially my day job and give myself the space I need to really pursue these things and that's when they're not left when I made the decision to leave is when they're not left when I called my boss and said I'm out
1: use the words panic and the phrase um, something wrong to describe the feeling that was kind of underpinning these decisions to go in search of something else, to climb, you know, you said climb out of the panic. Mm. In in hindsight, I've heard you say that in, especially from doing your podcast changes, you've kind of come to learn that that was in, in some respect like a midlife crisis.
0: Mm. Is that accurate? I think, I mean, I'm, I, I, think, I think I still might be in the midlife crisis. I, I like, I feel like something goes on in your 40s where, you really are compelled to look back at your life you're halfway through life right so you're like whoa what's what's going to happen for the next half so you look back you're kind of forced to look in the mirror so there was that in a way i think i think at that time um i don't know i don't know if i would attribute attribute that directly to like a midlife crisis it was more just it was more just feeling incredibly stressed and burdened and demanded by people I felt like so many people needed me I had a lot of teams around me production teams management teams had a lot of people around me a kind of ecosystem of people of which I was in the middle I'm sure you relate to that and I felt like I didn't want to be needed by so many people anymore um so my kids themselves were very needy and Obviously needed to be needed, um, and I wanted to devote most of the needing to them, and then also try and devote more time to have the space to try new things and learn i think I think it can happen to everyone, and I think when you're busy and when you are in a situation where you're just keeping things going, you're just trying to maintain life, you're trying to keep a business running, you're trying to keep your job going, trying to keep your kids happy. It's very hard to come out of the, of the um, chaos and look in. It's very hard to do that. So I spent a good, from about the age of 30 to about the age of 30, from 40, my entire 30s, it was that. It was just maintenance. I was mad ambitious, don't get me wrong. I wanted to get bigger, I wanted to try everything and I fiercely wanted to prove that I could do it all. But when it got to my second kid being about two I, I realized quite quickly that I just doing it all wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and actually there was different ways to do it. And what is all of it anyway? What is doing it all? I think there's something tremendously powerful in being able, and feminist in being able to choose to step away from a high-powered job to look after your kids, because it's a choice. I was very lucky in that it was a choice, and I still worked. Don't get me wrong, I love working. I will never stop working, but I just worked in a way that suited me that worked for my life as it was then.
1: That pivotal decision removes the knot. But in the the lead up to that decision, was there fear? I imagine there was a lot of people, where I would assume there'd be people telling you that, you know, or at least implying that you're making a wrong decision. Or was, it, because I asked that question because I can imagine people listening to what you've just said and they're stood on the, the edge of that that decision themselves. And they're looking into the darkness thinking, I, I'll lose my friendship group. I'll lose this. I'll lose mm. that. It just feels like loss. And stepping into uncertainty requires a certain level of courage or conviction or a certain, in some cases, a certain level of um, pain. There's that quote I used to, I used to love that said, um, change happens when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of making a change. So yeah, for that. people that are stood there looking into uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, can you, tell, can you tell them about how you felt in the, the lead up to that decision yourself? Was there fear? Was there doubt? No. No, wow.
0: And there wasn't because I'd spent two years trying to do the things that I wanted to do behind the scenes. And I knew with all my heart that I wanted to write. That writing was, was it, it felt like coming home. It felt like the most wonderful feeling discovering writing again. And I knew that the podcast had potential to be a business if I had the time to put into it. So there was this sense of kind of, um, uh, of, of knowing that the choices I'd made were right. I didn't feel scared leaving Radio 1. I didn't feel scared making that decision because after I, after I made the call to my boss to say I was leaving, I just felt the most huge sense of relief. And I always say that, you know, you've made the right decision. As soon as, as, soon as you deliver that decision, you get a feeling afterwards and that feeling tells you, whether you've made the right decision or not. And I knew with that feeling of relief that I'd made the right decision. And, you know, I'd been there for 17 years, Steve. I, you know, it wasn't like I'd had the most amazing time. So it, I didn't feel like I was leaving too soon. I felt like I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, done my, I'd done a good innings, you know. So if anything, I felt at peace and I was just excited I was excited to get the news out, excited to move on and move forwards. I've always been like that. I'm really impulsive. I'm really, ask any of my friends or my management team, and they will say, I'm very impatient. I'm very impulsive. I want things, everything to happen now. So um, in a way, it was good to to have time to make this decision and to have time before it came out to the world to process it. But I genuinely didn't feel fear. And I would say for anyone who's standing on the precipice of change, the best power you can have is knowledge. So know what you're stepping into, you know, as much as you can, and you will feel better and stronger about walking away from, from what's come before.
1: Part of the issue, I remember um, Obama saying on stage when he spoke in Brazil um, at this conference I was, I was at, um, he's, he talked about how in his role, when he, you know, when he went to get Osama bin Laden, that compound in Pakistan, is you never have all the information ahead of time.
0: Never, but that's what's exciting. Yeah. There has to be unknown. There has to That's be a sense terrifying of the for unknown. Some people. Yeah.
1: A certain type of person is trying to get to a hundred percent certainty. Well we all know hundred percent no such thing. Only in hindsight <laughs> you get it. <laughs>
0: but I think I think there's something very life affirming about not knowing everything. And something very important about being comfortable in that space of not knowing everything. You can't control life. You cannot control life as much as you try. I have tried. It's not possible. At some point, you have to relinquish control and allow allow yourself to move through life freely without trying to control everything around you. And for me, stepping into that, there was definitely an unknown ahead, but I knew enough to know that I was going to be okay in terms of emotionally and um, psychologically, and um, that that was okay. So, I agree. I think fear of the unknown is undeniable and indisputable. But I think it's about allowing that fear to exist, acknowledging it, seeing it, allowing it, and 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 you know, living with it to move forwards. Fear sometimes, you know, is healthy. It's a human instinct. It's important to feel it.
1: 17 years um, with the Beeb. You became one of the best DJs, one of the most well-known DJs in the whole of Europe. Tremendous success. Why you? When you look back and connect the dots, because, you know, there's, there's very few people at that top table. There's a lot of people that want to be at that top table. There's a lot of people that would love, that are listening to this right now, and that would absolutely say they would want to take your career to sit at that table, the table you walked away from. Mm -hmm. Why you?
0: Well, I think essentially I was different because I was a woman. Um, there wasn't that many women around. Um, when I was starting out in the world of dance music, um, so, I mean, there was women, I don't, and I'm by no means kind of saying that there wasn't, but there wasn't very many. Um, so I think for Radio One, they quite liked this idea of having a young woman join the station and, and do dance music. For them, they really liked the fact that I wasn't an expert. I wasn't tried and tested. I, was, I didn't have a reputation for being a huge global DJ. They wanted to employ someone that was representative of the audience. My initial tagline for my first show was like, I'm coming at this from the perspective of the dance floor as opposed to the DJ booth. I'm, I'm a fan here. And then, obviously, I got the gigs off the back of that and then slowly that transformed into me being a touring DJ and, you know, the residencies and all of that biz. I do think that at the start of my career, there was a kind of... uh, It felt a bit like a phenomenon because at the start, at the front of all my shows, it was women. It was all girls and everyone used to remark on that and I used to love that. So I think there was a feeling of uh, me bringing a different, maybe, audience to the table... Um, I was very amenable. I was very, you know, ambitious. I I was professional. I showed up. Um, I did the work. Um, I had a great team, an all-female team who worked really hard. I... I don't know. I think I I, I can't tell you any more than that, Steve. I don't
1: know. I, I find it really difficult. Real, oh. <laughs> how, how long was your apprenticeship? How long did you from the from the day you first you know DJed span a track um, to when people the world knew your name? How long was that period?
0: I um, mean, I mean, like as in, like I used to DJ around my friends' parties and stuff, like just for fun. From from when I was about. Uh, 20. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then I got my show on Radio 1 in 2004. So um, I would have been, uh, yeah, it would have been maybe like three or four years. Yeah. Because when I got my show on Radio 1, people knew my name immediately, which was quite
1: mad. Quite mad?
0: Well, it was just mad to be like, even though I'd worked behind the scenes at radio and I'd seen DJs, it Mm. was just quite bizarre to be going from the assistant producer, the person Mm. who made the tea, to then being like a DJ, get an agent, let's do a photo shoot. You know, it was just yeah, like, yeah. whoa, it was quite. But actually the, the biggest shock for me was um, going from working full time to having one show a week and just being really like, what? Because I love working. So I was a bit bored. So I had to find, find um, a, a, a way to make peace with being freelance, I suppose, and working
1: in my own hours. Do you think your relationship with your work is healthy?
0: Good question. I do now, but it definitely hasn't been in the past. I've always worked from when I was fifteen. Um, I I really enjoy working. Um, I've been hugely ambitious, so I had a sense of m- momentum that I felt like I had to, you know, I had to honor. Why? I think there was a lot of pressure being a female in what was essentially what felt like a man's world. So I felt very uh, like I wanted to prove that this was possible and that women could DJ and uh, we could carry a crowd and we could carry a a club night and an event and a festival and a residency all of that biz. I felt like I wanted to prove a point basically So there was that, but I also loved it. Mm. So it was kind of a a combination of both. A lot of the DJs at Radio 1 were really competitive as well. So it's kind of, you you kind of sense that there's a sense of like wanting to be able to stand and be proud of your lot and what you represent, and what you bring to Radio 1, you know. Um, So that momentum like carried me all the way through from my mid-20s up to, yeah, up to being around forty. And then just kind of just so mad, like just, you know, stepping, stepping off that train. It's just, it's just crazy because you ask yourself all these questions. What, where was all that coming from? Why did I, why did I want to work so hard? Who was I trying to prove these things to, you know, but the, the, the fact of the matter is I did enjoy it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and be like, it was awful. It wasn't, it was absolutely fucking amazing. So, um, I'm, I'm really grateful for it.
1: But it was unsustainable.
0: It was unsustainable for where I was at. And this is the thing that I've learned is that where I was at in my life, it didn't work at that time. But as we know, life changes. Our situations change all the time. So I could go back to being a full-time touring DJ in five years and do my Ibiza residencies all over again. And I quite like having that openness. I doesn't, this doesn't have to be a closed book now. I could go back to broadcasting and doing a, like a, a daily radio show. It's about adapting with who you are at that time in your life and what you need. And that's what I did. So for me, um, and it's only really in the last year that I've opened up to everything again. I think I'd I'd, I'd been so blinkered like, that's it now, radio's done. I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a podcaster and I'm going to DJ now and again, the end. But now it's like, no, actually with Before Midnight, it's like, no, I I can really flourish as a DJ. I can really make this last and and blossom into something that's completely different than how I envisioned being a DJ as an older person. Same with, you know, radio. I could go back to that and find a whole new way of doing radio that feels amazing for who I am at that moment. So I really like this feeling of everything being open and attainable um, according to where I'm at in my life.
1: With all of this um, chaos yeah, I think is a good word. Because I think chaos is, um, going back to something you were talking about earlier, the need for something to strive for in a sense of forward momentum. It's funny, I, I wrote about how um, how we go through lives thinking we're trying to reach stability, having no goals, everything's sorted. But really, we're actually trying to stay in chaos. And it t- it's kind of a, a paradox that when we reach stability, we get psychological chaos. Mm. And when we're in chaos, we have stability. <laughs> yeah. like, when our, like when we're striving and when we have goals to complete and things yeah. are busy, we're stable. Yeah. But with all this chaos um, that you've chosen over the last you know 10 years yeah what's your 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 mental health journey been like
0: I mean the mental health journey has been pretty it's been pretty uh okay and I'm I, I realize how lucky I am to say that you know I feel very grateful that I haven't suffered from depression or anxiety or anything like that in my life um weirdly recently like and it's interesting that you talk about this idea of when you stop then kind of you have chaos in your head so I've experienced a bit of that in the last six months and I think that is finally like a year after leaving radio it's all kind of settled down and everything I've wanted to change has changed and life is really safe it's really predictable and I'm a little bit bored. So it's like, I've had to be like, okay, you've got everything you want, but now you need a bit of chaos again. So it's, it's just constant tweaks. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going out on the road again. There's things that are happening that will, will scratch that itch. It's fine. But, um, I've also felt kind of like hormonally, just like, you know, I'm 44, I'm in perimenopause. This is all happening to me now. There's a whole different change in life. They call it the shift, you know, everything's changing there. So, there's this sense of hormones kind of consuming you and taking over your mental health in a way that if you weren't aware of it, can be really scary and frightening and damaging. So I'm trying to educate myself as much as possible about all of that stuff so that when it hits me, I know what's coming for me, you know, and I know what to do when it comes.
1: I was talking to Gabby Logan about that in... Our last episode yeah
0: it's so insidious because it, it comes it's so quietly it kind of creeps in and it creeps in and like as, as gabby said like with moods you know you kind of quite your moods are more extreme you don't deal with things as well you you kind of get irritable more or angry or upset easier but for me i felt like and this is the other thing about perimenopause it might come and then it will go for six months and then it come back again so it's really there's no regulation to it so it's very hard to pinpoint oh that's it you know mm-hmm. so what you have to do is be really across it and document everything and then be able to zoom out and look and be like "Why well, that 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 okay it is it's perimenopause so that's what I'm kind of doing at the moment I'm documenting everything but um it's it, like I had a feeling recently of just feeling totally restless like oh my god not like insatiable like nothing was nothing was satisfying me I couldn't you know I would exercise I'd see friends I'd go out I'd be with the kids I you know everything I tried just I just could not feel satiated and I did not understand it and then I realized that it was a hormonal thing so there's there's so many things that you go through and it's like a weird jigsaw puzzle but if you know what you're looking for it really helps and I actually have Davina McCall to thank for that because she sent me her book and she's been an incredible spokesperson for menopause and perimenopause and just getting information out there to people um I think she deserves some sort of you know national treasure status. She's incredible for what she's doing.
1: I agree. I think she's amazing. Mm. She uh she DMs me sometimes. I, I still freak out because I, I think I'm, I'm yeah. same such <laughs> a fan. Like, oh my god,
0: it's Davina off the deli.
1: <laughs> on that on that point of um women related issues, one of the the things I've heard you talk about is tokenism. Okay. Yeah. Um, I read an article you wrote, oh, I'm going to get this date wrong, maybe 2014 or 2016 in Vice. Oh, the
0: Vice article. Yeah. How
1: yeah. do you feel about the article? Your reaction was interesting.
0: I feel at the time I, I felt it and I meant it. So what I was arguing about was, you know, a journalist who asked me what it was like to DJ in heels and, you know, kept referring back to the fact that I was a woman when I DJ'd and I was, re- I was pissed off about it. It was like, can you stop asking me about being a woman? Because... You're not asking this to Pete Tong, you know. You're not asking this to other DJs. Um, and then there was a there was a thing at the time where it was like this idea of doing like all female nights, you know, like just female only DJ nights. And I resisted that because I, I at the time I was felt like it didn't feel right to to have to put us down to gender as opposed to ability as DJs. Like why are we? Why are you grouping all the women together? Like just just let us all be DJs together, you know. You're either a good DJ or you're not, the end. There shouldn't be a gender issue. But obviously, over the years, with the lack of, you know, women in the game, it was like I I kind of had to, like, change my mind on that a little bit. Not change my mind. I still don't think that women sh- or like DJs should be assessed with regards to their gender. But if we need to have more women in the game, then yes, we should be encouraging any way that we can do that. And if that means putting loads of women on a lineup and reminding people how great women are as DJs, then, then go for it. So I think for a lot of my early career, it didn't even occur to me that it was, you know, there was, I I mean, I knew there was a problem in that there wasn't a lot of women DJs and I was always delighted when there was other women around, but it didn't occur to me to, to be an activist about it and to shout about it and to try and, bring women through there was one turning point I remember when I got asked to DJ at a festival and um they wanted me to be a headliner and I looked at the lineup and it, the first 11 lines of names were all men and it was the 12th line where there was a female name and I remember emailing back to promoters who were all guys and saying who I knew and worked with it was like guys like come on what's going on here um and that was the first time I ever kind of answered, you know, was just like, this isn't okay. Um, and then from then it kind of snowballed and I became a lot more vocal about it. Once it clicked that I actually had a bit of power and I could do something about it, you know. Um, and it's been a joy to watch because now there's so many amazing women. They're, they're like killing it.
1: When you think about the, the next chapter of your life, if, if we sat here in 10 years time and I said, um, Annie that was a really successful 10 years. Or you told me it was a really successful 10 years. What would have it had to involve for that to be the case?
0: I mean, this is fascinating because as I've got older, my idea of what success is has completely changed. Success for me isn't numbers. It's not tickets sold. It's not um, awareness. It's not... Algorithms, it's not anything like that. Success for me now is personal happiness. Personal happiness stems from feeling stimulated, feeling as alive as I possibly can, um, uh, learning and also feeling like the people I love are in the best possible way that they can be in terms of living their lives so that's success now. Um, so if you were to tell me, you know, at the end of my forties that you had a successful decade, for me, that would mean that I felt, I felt like, um, a sense of contentment and peace, but also I felt alive. I felt alive. I always go back to that. I think writing makes you feel alive because it forces you to put what's there down on on paper and it forces you to look at what's in your head and it forces you to figure things out. Um, I think learning makes you feel alive. It makes your head tick, it challenges you. So it's that combination of kind of peaceful contentment, but also (laughs) feeling like pushed and challenged in a way that isn't going to be damaging. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. Okay, good. It makes good. perfect sense. Right, okay. Conversely then, if, if the next 10 years was unsuccessful and, mm. and you said to yourself, do you know what, I made the same mistakes again. Yeah. What would that 10 years involve if it was unsuccessful and you'd made the same mistakes again?
0: I think it would be running away with a sense of what I should be doing as opposed to what I actually really want to do. So let's take this for example, let's say changes my podcast. It would be... It would be, okay, it's doing well, so I want to double it. I want to do two more episodes a week. I want to try and be the biggest, best podcast out there. Blah, blah, blah. And, and and kind of doing that without the resources or without the team around me to do it, taking on that responsibility as opposed to just allowing it to grow kind of slowly uh, as it is. It would also be DJing way more. It would be trying to write a book every two years, <laughs> which I have been doing. And I don't know if it's just that sustainable. Um, And just, yeah, I guess kind of doubling down on all the work I'm doing and trying to be the best and the biggest at what I'm doing as opposed to doing what I'm doing well and within my means.
1: We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves a question for the next guest, not knowing who they're going to be leaving it for. Yeah. The question that's been left for you is, what is the pain you experience in your life that hurt the most, but you would not erase in hindsight? Um,
0: getting dumped when I was in my twenties. Yeah. Getting dumped. Um, it was the biggest kind of experience like that. And it was really important for me to know how that felt. Um, to be on the receiving end of heartbreak. Um, I was incredibly miserable, but I climbed out of it and I think it was a real big lesson to know how that felt. So yeah, getting dumped in my 20s, yeah.
1: Why was it important to know how that felt?
0: Because I'd always been the dumper. I, I, I was always that person who kind of was able to up and leave. And I'd never been on the other side of that,
1: isn't it the most excruciating pain in the world? Oh God Black hole of
0: <laughs> it's just awful. it's just ultimate rejection. It's kind of very hard to see past it, but yeah,
1: a lot of the world will know you as Annie Mac, but more, sure, but more recently, um you've really taken hold of your your full name, Annie McManus yes, reclaimed it reclaimed. <laughs> Why Why so?
0: I don't know. I just felt like, I just, again, I went through this period of change, Steve, where I just like, I, I wanted to change everything. I got, I, I it was like, okay, I've changed my job. Something so huge and what felt quite insurmountable at times to be able to change that empowered me to want to change loads more. So writing this book, it genuinely, the the first book I wrote, Mother Mother, it felt like a whole different side of me. It felt like, All of me. There's you know, when you're when 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 I'm on the radio, well, first of all, when I'm DJing, no one really gets any of me apart from my music selections and the odd crowd surf if I've drank enough. But radio, there's also a very limited kind of surface level of me that you get, that you got, because I was only able really to talk about music most of the time. Um, and yes, it's tidbits of your life. But with this book, it felt like a real kind of sum of all of my parts. So it felt like a disservice to the book to give it that name. I was also very determined to try and call it by my full name. In in, in a contrary way, I suppose my agent at the time would have probably said that, like, surely you should just cash in on the fact that it's Annie Mac and people know you for that. But I really didn't want to do that. I wanted the book to be judged for the writing and for nothing else. I kind of did it all the way. I should have started with a memoir and then gone to a book, but I I did it all. I wrote this strange kind of bleak novel about addiction and grief and a young girl growing up in Belfast. And it was so far removed from any perception of who I was as a kind of professional person. But I liked that because it kind of, it kind of set the bar for what I wanted to do with the writing. I didn't want it to be influenced by anything that had come before. I wanted it to be real and true and authentic to who I was as a person. So it felt right to, to to give it my full name, my born name.
1: Well Annie, I'm I'm really glad you did because I think it's somewhat symbolic of the journey you've been on so clearly in your life and your relationship with your own conviction and creativity and intuition, which is creating ever greater ever more valuable art as you kind of, the pendulum swings over to intuition and stepping into yourself and understanding who you are. Mm. Um, but I can also tell from the conversations we've had that it's bringing you closer to your sense of like fulfillment in life and mm. balance and all those things, which for many of us, we, um, we abandoned in the pursuit as we're dragged away by our, our desire to fit in or momentum or our success mm. or whatever. And, um, that's created some amazing writing, um it's created amazing new ideas as you talked about with your your new format that ends at midnight mm. um and it's very exciting to be on the receiving end of all of that art and creativity it's also very inspiring um mm. your podcast is amazing
0: thank you so much my best
1: friend in the whole world he peppers me every day he says you need to listen to this episode and this episode he mm. absolutely loves it my friend ash is my best friend Aww. um and i recommend everybody listening to this to go and check it out because if you if you love deep conversations if you love realness and vulnerability mm. then you definitely will love changes Thank you so much,
0: Steve, and and also like everything I've talked about has been inspired by talking about change on a on a weekly basis. Yeah. You know, and that that is empowering, learning from other people and how they change their life. So I think that's helped me a little bit. The podcast has helped me to be brave, to change.
1: Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, um, yeah, and yours is one of the real really important ones out there. So everybody make sure you go and listen to that. I'm excited for your book coming next thank year.
0: Thank you, Steve. I know
1: how terrifying that can be and how much work that is to, yes. to create something like that. So yes. um, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the inspiration. And um, I'm, I'm, as a fan, I'm excited to see all the, the wonderful things your passion and um, sort of intuition creates over the next decade. Well, thank you, uh, for, you for the lovely sick, questions.
0: I, I can't feel like I just talked at you. No, the it's that,
1: that's the point. Of the, uh, <laughs> I'm not here to talk. People are sick of me. no, uh, Thank you, Annie. <laughs> thank Means you. A lot. Thanks. Quick one. As you might know, Crafted are one of the sponsors of this podcast and Crafted are a jewelry brand and they make really meaningful pieces of jewelry. The really wonderful thing about Crafted jewelry is it's super affordable. It looks amazing, the pieces hold tremendous meaning and they are really well made. I think I've worn this piece for almost a year. It hasn't broken hasn't changed color because it's really, really good quality and it costs roughly 50 quid. People will be surprised when they hear that. they would probably assume that all of my jewelry is like solid gold and costs thousands and thousands of pounds, but what's the point when you can achieve the exact same effect from a piece of jewelry that's high quality and costs 50 quid? That's why I buy Crafted. (laughs)